0: Good morning. Please stand for the opening of Matthew 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. After his birth, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him they opened their treasure chests and presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way, the word of God for the people of God.
1: Thank you, Doreen. That was the most believable Herod I've ever heard. <laughs> that was so good. Yes. So good. Thank you. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. I know it's still a week away, but this is our Christmas Sunday, the closest thing we have to Christmas Sunday. Uh, it's great to be with you all. And, you know, we've been in Colossians, obviously, all fall. So I kind of had just a one off shot. I could do whatever I wanted uh, for Christmas. And, Um, I was drawn to the Magi this year, and uh, there's something about this story that's always intrigued me, and especially I'm drawn by the mystery of this story, like all the unknowns, all that Matthew doesn't tell us uh, about this story that I'm so curious about, and uh, so I wanted to look at them and, and talk about them. We, we know kind of the, the basics of their story. Of course, we all know it's the story of these three kings, right, who followed a star from their land in the east to the manger scene where they gave gifts to Jesus. We know the basics, right? Right? Yes. These three kings who followed a star from the east and came to the manger to give gifts to Jesus, right? Yes. Wrong. So nothing that I just said is in Scripture okay? Nowhere in the Bible does it say there are three of them. Who would have thought? My picture shows three, right? Uh, They give three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but there could have been two. There could have been 50. We have no idea how many there were. Uh, They definitely were not kings. Sorry what the song says. Uh, We'll find out they are magi, right? You're going to all feel very betrayed in a second, okay? My theory, nowhere does it say they followed a star from their land in the east, it says, they saw a star in the east, and based on what they saw, they came to Jerusalem to worship the king of the Jews. They clearly follow something from Jerusalem to Bethlehem at the end, but nowhere does it say they actually followed a star from their land in the east. And sorry to say, they definitely didn't show up at the manger to worship Jesus. Yeah, right, this starts with in verse, uh, verse one, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, this is when they show up. So we're gonna have to have some losses to our nativity scenes this year. <laughs> Um, I found out, I don't know if if Cynthia's here, can I share this story? So Mark was sharing, we were talking about this this week, and so Mark uh, grew up in in their nativity set. They had the shepherds in the nativity set, and then off in another room of the house were the wise men. And so I want to congratulate Cynthia Page on her faithful uh, (laughs) rendering of the biblical story. I don't know if she's here. Uh, see here, I don't know. Anyways, um, so yeah, so there's so much actually that, that tradition tells us, but we don't know a lot, and it's fun to go, what is, what do the scriptures actually say versus what has been built up over time, okay? Um, here's what we do know, (laughs) and what I really want to talk about today is, and this is what struck me about these, however many of them there were, these magi, they are a beautiful example of worship, Okay? I want to talk about worship by looking at them this morning, and I I mean not just like a token song here or there, but the radical reorientation of their lives around this new king, to serve him, to honor him, to pay him homage, and they're, they're this invitation to us this Christmas season to ask ourselves, what would it look like to actually be worshipers of this newborn king? So I want to talk about that this morning. Um, First, let's just talk about these guys a little bit, uh, some of the mystery that I already mentioned, but um, they're described as magi, okay, and we don't know all that that is. Um, Of course, in English, we get our words magic and magician uh, from this word, um, but we know very little about them. These are men who were probably skilled in things like mathematics and the science of the day, maybe the philosophy of the day. What for sure we know is that they were astronomers, Okay? And not only astronomers, but I would actually say astrologers, right? They were people who looked at the night sky and, and gained meaning about human events from what they saw in the stars. That's clearly what they did. And what's fascinating about that is any first century Jew would really look down on that profession, Right? As Jewish people were monotheists, uh, we don't think that the stars determine the destiny of human beings. Yahweh and Yahweh alone, right, determines that. We're, we're not consulting our horoscopes as first-century Jews, right? And yet, something about what these men saw led them to worship the King of the Jews. They're worshiping. It tells us uh, that magi came from the east. Okay, that's as much of a description as we get. Most scholars think they come from uh, the area of Babylon. This would be modern-day Iraq. That's the, the general consensus, and that would make sense. Of course, 500, 600 years earlier, Israel had been led into exile. Remember that? In Babylon, that area of Syria. And so uh, those, this would be the time of like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those stories. And so those peoples would have become familiar with the Jewish people and the Jewish religion. And so these are men who maybe over the centuries were familiar uh, with Judaism and the Jewish hope for a coming Messiah, a coming king. They might have been familiar. This is a prophecy that Balaam, another uh, foreigner, made about uh, a coming king. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. A ruler will come out of Jacob, and Israel will grow strong. Okay, so it's possible that these magi had some knowledge of Judaism clearly, even in their foreign land. And to the star, of course, we have to wonder what in the heck did they see, right? Look at verse 2, the end of verse 2. All they say is, we saw his star when it rose. So apparently there's a star that they think is his star. <laughs> Something that, that appears that wasn't there before that they think, oh, this is the Jewish king's star. And of course, people have debated forever what that is. Some people suggested there was some comet that came through that time. We know when certain comets passed through. Uh, I think the, the one I hear most often is that there was some alignment or conjunction of, of stars or of, of planets like Jupiter and Saturn. And people have all sorts of debate. Okay, Jupiter was the king up star, and Saturn was the the Shalom star, so king of Shalom, king of Salem, maybe, maybe you get to king of Jerusalem, we really don't know, but they see something in the night sky, and based on their understanding of the skies, they decide this means that a king has been born. And again, I think, my theory is, they don't follow a star from their land. They see something, and then they go, where are kings of Israel born? Well, you go to Jerusalem, right? So they go to Jerusalem, and when they get to Jerusalem, they find out from the Scriptures, oh, the king's to be born in Bethlehem. And then the way, at least for me, the story reads is then they start heading out for Jerusalem in verse 9, and then the star that they had seen when it rose... It, started, it actually went ahead of them. Clearly, something miraculous starts happening with this star because I don't think stars can point to individual homes, okay? So something, God does something miraculous and localized where this star then comes to rest over this home in some way or, or highlights this home. And the star that's seen earlier, they see it again, and now it's moving, and it, and it shows them where the house is, and it says, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed, Okay. Who knows what's going on, and now some of you are not gonna th- aren't going to pay attention to what I say for the next 30 minutes, okay? <laughs> All that to say, and part of my point to, is there's so much mystery uh, to these guys, to, and, and so much that Matthew leaves out that I, I would love to ask him, uh, and maybe he doesn't even know much more than he's given us himself, but what's not a mystery, and what I want to focus this morning again, is what they do, Okay? And in a word, it is they worship. Look at verse two. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, or some of you might even have a star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And what I want to do, what I was compelled by this week, is just thinking about what worship meant to these magi. Okay, First, think about what they did. Okay, They went on a trip. They took a trip from Babylon to Bethlehem, okay? That's about 1,500 miles. So most people say by traveling back then, that's a, a three to four month trip, okay? So we're looking at over a half year round trip to do this. Of course, they leave their home. They may have left their families behind, their work behind. Of course, they leave, you know, whatever is there. And they go on a half year trip they risk their safety, travel was a pretty dangerous thing back then, right? They risk of course their schedule, their convenience, all these things, and maybe even the unknown of if they're not actually following a star, but they're just taking the information they have thinking I think we're supposed to go to Jerusalem, they're they're doing this without really knowing what the outcome's gonna be. So I just want you to imagine yourself deciding to make a six month long trip to go see somebody. Okay, that's a, what I'd call a radical reorientation of their lives. Um, of course, they meet King Herod in Jerusalem. They have no idea what danger they're in there, but they're in great danger. Uh, and then, and then uh, in verse 11, they finally come to the house after this long journey. And look at verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Okay, I want you to picture, whatever you picture these guys being like, These they're clearly learned, uh, distinguished, I would imagine, adult men, bowing down, right? Getting on their knees, humbling themselves, paying homage to this, however old this little infant boy is. And I've always wondered what that experience was like for Mary, right? I mean, to to be there with Jesus and have these, kind of exotic foreigners come into this room and and offer this kind of humble homage to her little boy right but just humility and honor being paid to this little this little boy and then look at the second half of verse 11 i love this then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh they opened their treasures, Matthew said. These are wealthy men, clearly, right? They have, they have treasures, and they don't withhold that treasure from this boy. They don't just pay lip service. They open from their treasures and give of their treasures to this little boy. These gifts, right? They give gifts, and lots been made about the meaning of the gifts, gold, incense, and myrrh, lots of debate. I don't really know. Some people think gold is a gift. That kind of communicates royalty. Incense can communicate divinity. Uh, myrrh can talk about Jesus' burial. I, honestly, I, I'm not sure how much credence we should give to that. But whatever, um, very generous, clearly very generous gifts that are fit for a king. And this is, of course, where the origin of gift-giving at Christmas is the gifts of the Magi to Jesus. Okay, so just think about that. They take this six-month trip. Uh, And then they come and they bow and worship, they open their treasures, they give gifts. What I'm calling today, worship, the radical reorientation of their lives around this newborn king. And I was just thinking, like, imagine being them and going home and telling the story to people and, and trying to make sense of what you've just done to the people you know. So, okay, wait, what did you do? Wait, what? Okay, so we saw the star, right? I mean, just play that out in your own mind, uh, and we thought the King of Jews. So we thought we'd go to Jerusalem, and so we took the three to four month trip to Jerusalem. You, you took a three, yeah, um, and then and we found him. And when we got there, we we worshipped him and, and we gave him gifts. And then what happened? That was it. You know, we and then we came back. <laughs> you, I, sorry, you took six months of your life to. Bow down and worship and give gifts to this kid. Yeah. What on earth possessed you to do that? Right? We don't don't know. Matthew gives us no sense of their the motivations behind these people. All we have is the only words they give us in verse 2. He's the one born to be king, and we've come to worship him. Because he's worth it, because he's the king. Because this is the honor and worship that is due him because of who he is. Right? That's all we can assume about what's driving these guys. And, and I was just moved by what a beautiful example of worship. And this is my point today, that Matthew opens his gospel and his, shares his Christmas story to remind us that God is seeking worshipers like this who will re orient their lives to serve and honor his son. Okay, that's my idea. If you don't get anything else, that's, that's the line right there. And not only, the good news is not only is God seeking these kinds of worshipers, but God is raising up these kinds of worshipers in the world who will reorient their lives around his son. And sometimes, Matthew's gospel especially is telling us he's doing that in the most unlikely people and in the most unlikely places, okay? And we're so familiar with this story, right? This is part of like the Christmas lore. Wise men, shepherds, this is the, this is the, the canon of Christmas. We forget what a bizarre story this is. What an utterly unexpected story set of visitors this is, right? These guys who are not Jewish, they come from thousands of miles away, right? They're following the stars, they're astrologers, and that gets them here, and they're the ones that come and worship the king. While meanwhile, five miles away is Jerusalem, okay? It's an hour and a half walk, okay? Not a six-month trip. You have the religious leaders of the day. You have the people of God, the Jewish people and their leaders who have the scriptures, who have been waiting for centuries for their Messiah. And when this Messiah comes and is born, it's these utterly unexpected foreigners who come and worship, not the people you would most expect. God is raising up very unlikely people, Matthew's gospel is telling us. And I I say his the, that's a theme for him because if you go back, go back to chapter one. I just want to remind you how Matthew starts his Christmas story. Uh, he starts it off uh, with a rip-roaring uh, genealogy, uh, which is always a good way to start a, a fast-paced novel. Um, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, okay, right? You've got this genealogy, but if you pay attention to the genealogy, Matthew does something very unexpected. And what he does is he includes four women in Jesus' genealogy, which itself is an unexpected thing to do in ancient society, okay? But the women he chooses are particularly interesting. Let me name them. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, okay? And all four of those women are, first of all, foreigners, okay, unexpected in the lineage of the Jewish king. And I would say at least three of the four of them, uh, their stories are, I would say, wrapped in some kind of sexual scandal, if I can put it that way. Either by their profession, they're a prostitute, they're a part of an affair, they slept with their father-in-law, okay, sometimes not, not their choice, but they're wrapped up in kind of a, a bizarre set of things, um, utterly, my point being, unlikely members of the genealogy of the Christ, And Matthew intentionally puts them there because they are also these women of great faith, these women who made some very courageous decisions to say, I will put my stake in the ground with Yahweh and his people. And Matthew holds them up as examples of unlikely worshipers. And of course, that genealogy then leads in verse 18 to the story of another woman, this young girl from, of all places, Nazareth, right? Unlikely place for Messiah. And whose, whose pregnancy itself is wrapped in some sexual scandal. Pregnant, out of wedlock, in a very conservative Jewish village, right? Unlikely <laughs> mother for the Messiah. And yet she too demonstrates this beautiful uh, heart of worship, right? May it be to me as you have said, I'm the Lord's servant, what you've said, this is, she says this to the angel, may it be to me. Here's talk about the radical reorientation of her life um, around the Messiah. And so this is Matthew's theme, I think, or one of his themes in the first two chapters of his gospel, that God is busy raising up worshipers who will actually reorient their lives around his son. And of course, the invitation is we can, we can join the ranks of, of Mary and the wise men and the shepherds and Simeon and Zechariah, all these unlikely people who worship and bow down before this king. So that's the invitation. Uh, of course, Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel also confront us with the alternative, uh, which is this, not everybody <laughs> worships the king. Not everybody wants to reorient their lives Around this newborn Messiah. And in, in Matthew's story, the obvious culprit there is uh, King Herod, right? And it's interesting to just how Matthew tells the story twice. Uh, in, in the first three verses, he's referred to not just as Herod, which is often what he's referred to, but as King Herod. King Herod. Herod the king. And King Herod hears this question: where is the one born to be king? And so what you have there is this threat, of course, to Herod. He's not looking for another king. He wants to be king. And so rather than worship, he embarks on this utterly uh, violent approach towards this newborn king. And this is the darkest part of the Christmas story, what we know as the slaughter of the innocents, where Herod actually has all the the boys in the Bethlehem vicinity, two years and under, uh, killed to try to eradicate this king. And I would imagine none of us relate to the violence, uh, the, the utter just antipathy of, of Herod's response to this other king. Um, but we all can relate in our lives um, to times when the kingship of Jesus, the authority and lordship of Jesus uh, impinges on our lordship in our lives, if I can put it that way. And we're, we're good, you know. To come to a Sunday service, we're good. To maybe have a devotional, we're good to be part of a small group. Um, but there are certain things in life where all of us would say, uh, you cannot touch this. This is where I will be king or queen, right? I'll give you Sundays, but don't you dare mess with, and you fill in the blank, right? Don't mess with my money. Um, don't mess with my routines. Don't mess with my family, right? You, you can be king here, <laughs> But when push comes to shove, uh, I think I'll I'll take authority for that. Thank you very much. And every human heart, right, has to wrestle uh, with that. And Jesus is like, I want it all, right? We talked about that last week. I want it all. And so Herod is this this, um, cautionary tale of what is in the human heart, what is in all of our hearts, Right? Uh, now, Luke's gospel actually includes a detail that I think is even more poignant than the character of Herod, and it's, it's this description. Um, it's not that description. It's this description. Uh, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, and this, this just hit me in a fresh way this, this week, because there was no guest room available for them, or most of us learned it as there was no room at the inn, Right? And anyway, whatever that detail of that is, what, what was going on, they were pushed out to some kind of stable situation, right? And, and that, that detail hit me so hard, the, the Jewish Messiah comes to the city of David to be born. And when he's born, there's not room for him. And we don't know, again, we fill these details in, right? We've seen stores. Is it because the census and, the, you know, there's the hustle and bustle? Um, maybe everyone's just getting ready for Christmas. We don't know what's going on there, right? Gotcha, gotcha. Just seeing. It's called an anachronism. Um, but Messiah comes to his town and there's not room. Like, that's a poignant detail, right? I mean, there's, there's a little room, but he's pushed out to the margins. And I thought, what a perfect poignant description of life in Orange County right like most of us it's there's not hostility it's not Herod we're not Herod the 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 danger and the, the challenge is Jesus comes and there's just there's not room right there's just so much experiences and and opportunities and pleasures and diversions and responsibilities some of them are great right it's just full. And so Jesus is there, um, but he's pushed to the margins. You, you can, there's no room in the guest room, but there's room here. <laughs> I thought, what a, what, what a poignant description. Last week we talked about, I, I, created, I showed you that pie chart, right? And it's like Jesus gets us this slice of the pie, right? You can have this slice. You can be pushed here. And Jesus is like, I want the whole pie. And we're like, there's just... There's not a lot of room left. Um, I read this, uh, uh, actually, I'm in a small group. We were reading this this week from John Piper. This description was so powerful to me. The weakness of our hunger for God is not because he's unsavory, but because we keep ourselves stuffed with other things. It's not the banquet of the wicked that doles our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. These are your mean potatoes in coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising, collecting and talking, and all of them can become deadly substitutes for Christ, right? Good things or certainly not bad things, just a lot of things, and there's just not a lot of room left in life for Jesus to be fully king of it all. Jesus himself, of course, has this amazing description. This is the parable of the sower, where a man sows seed, and it grows up among thorns and weeds. And it grows up a little bit, and then the weeds and the thorns choke it out. And this is what he says. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear. They hear the message of the gospel. But as they go on their way, they are choked, look at this description, by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. And they do not mature. Anybody? Anybody? focused on life's worries, riches, and pleasures, his description is choked. There's just not enough life for this to to grow into fullness, or to use Luke's description. There's just not a lot of room. There's a little room. Uh, There's just not a lot of room. And I think this is the great danger of our lives. It's probably not the danger of Herod. It's the danger of Bethlehem, right? Right? And in Christmas, of all, like the Christmas season is a microcosm of this larger picture. It's a cliche to say that Christ gets lost in Christmas, right? I mean, every year you hear that message, and every year it is possibly true. (laughs) And it is—it's the danger of our lives in general. There's just no room. And so, I as I just thought about that, I thought, what I want to do this this year, I want to offer us the Magi. As, a, um, as an unexpected, utterly surprising invitation, which is this. What would it look like to go from consumer, where Jesus gets little bits of us, to worshiper? What would it look like uh, to not settle for worship being this kind of token acknowledgement along the way, but a radical reorientation of our lives? Around the King, I will reorient my life around you. I'm not gonna just live my life and ask you to reorient yourself around me, Jesus. You're king, right? You're the Messiah. I wanna reorient my life around you. I wanna reorient my time. I wanna reorient my finances. I wanna reorient my relationships. I wanna reorient my focus, right? I wanna reorient my prayers even around you. I'm in for you. That my life is yours, right? I, the, the verse I missed is, in view of God's mercies, offer yourselves as what? Living sacrifices, right? Like an animal that lays down its life on the altar. This is how I want to live because you're the king and this is what is due you. And so I want to invite you this year, I mean, we're deep into the, the Christmas season at this point, or the Advent season at least, but to ask yourself, what would it look like for me to reorient myself around Jesus, my life, even in this season, even in this next week, what is one way that I could do a reorientation so that Jesus becomes the focus in some way? And so I'm gonna give you a, a moment of silence to think about that, but before I do, the, the last thought I had is, how do we become worshipers? And in, in, in terms of the song, um, What do I want here? Clearly, I'm not on on with my slides today. Um, How do we become worshipers? Uh, The song says, come and behold him, right? And we're going to sing that in a second. Um, Are we? No, we're not. I lied. But we'll sing that sometime the next week. (laughs) Uh, We come and behold him. And so I thought we would take just a minute together to think about, before we think about how will we reorient our lives around him, Just to think in this Christmas season to consider this. Think about how he chose to reorient his life around you. Okay? These magi are a beautiful picture. They took a six-month trip from Babylon to Bethlehem. I want you to think about the journey that your king took, that Mark already articulated. Emmanuel, right? Becoming flesh. Think about how he chose to utterly reorient his entire existence for your sake and for my sake, okay? Here's a couple phrases that came to me. He took a journey from heaven to earth, from infinity to flesh, from glory to humility, From a throne to a feeding trough. From omnipotence to dependency. From security to danger. From wealth to poverty. And from sinless one to being made sin for us. This is the journey he took. And guess what? His journey was a one-way trip, okay? His journey to humanity, there's no return trip for him. Jesus has become forever human, okay? When you see him in eternity, he stands as a glorified human being. He has entered flesh forever, okay? The unchanging God changed forever, never to return in, he is he is a glorified human being. He is with us, in that way, forever. Come and behold him, right? Paul says it so beautifully in Second Corinthians. I love this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The richest being in the universe. He opened his treasures, right? And he poured out his treasures until he became poor, ultimately until he hung on a cross and was made sin for us and died for us. He poured out every rich, richest, parts of his riches that he had so that we might become so spiritually rich, sons and daughters of the king destined for eternal life, filled with his spirit. Image bearers, right? He poured out his riches and became poor so that we might become rich. And so with that in your mind, his radical reorientation of everything about himself for you and for me, the question I want to leave us with is, what would it look like, even in the next two weeks, at the end of this year, to reorient ourselves in some way around him as an act of worship, to join the magi in worshiping the king. And again, you might think, I, I want to reorient my time. I want to I make more room in my time in the next two weeks to dedicate to Jesus. Or maybe there's a, a relational reorientation. There's, I, I, there's a couple people I want to do a really good job of loving um, as an act of worship to Jesus. Maybe you want to reorient your prayers. I, I've prayed a lot about things that I'm looking for, but I want to, I want to be praying for, for others or for, for Jesus that, that He would be made, you know, He'd be glorified in people's lives. Okay, well, you get to decide what that is. Um, but let's do this. Let's just take a moment of silence and, as an act of worship of the King, say, Lord, I, w- I want to come before you like the Magi and I want to offer you my gifts uh, this season. So let's do that. Let's just close our eyes and I'll give you a moment of silence to, to consider Jesus and what is, what is a gift that you would want to offer him
0: this year.